our church this year, we have gone through the Gospels quite a lot this year. We went through John's Gospel for a length of time, and then in the lectionary readings, we have been in the Gospel stories. And today we're going to focus on the epistle reading from Romans chapter 12. Before we begin, let us pray. Almighty God, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. So help us to read, mark, pray, and inwardly digest this, your holy word, that we might be transformed to become more and more like Jesus. Lord, teach us to seek you. And as we seek you, show yourself to us. For we cannot seek you unless you show us how. And we will never find you unless you show yourself to us. Let us seek you by desiring you and desire you by seeking you. Let us find you by loving you and love you in finding you. Amen. My design leads me to speak of forms changed into new bodies. You gods, for it was you who changed them, favor my attempts and bring this lengthened narrative from the very beginning of the world even to my own time. That is not the Apostle Paul in Romans. That is the Latin poet Ovid in his book Metamorphosis. It was written in the, the year 8, 8 AD, not 80, 8. So Jesus was about five or eight years old or so. And from, from ancient times, from Ovid's day, who wrote this book about transformations, the transformation of people, the transformations of the world, from ancient times until today, we know we are always changing and we want to change. Everyone wants to be renewed. There are any number of advertisements you saw this week that you will see this very day about how you can renovate your life, how you can be transformed. But we are also unsettled by change and we're unsettled by the decay we see in this world. My grandmother, Alice, is one of the dearest people I've known in my life, and she passed away in 2020. And my earliest memories of her are her growing her own pumpkins in her yard and baking them for us at, at Thanksgiving in pumpkin pies, doing ridiculous uh, crafts at Christmas to love us, um, hand-decorating, papier-mâché stuff, unbelievable amounts of time trying to love us. And she spent her life as a nurse in a psychiatric ward in Amarillo, Texas. She spent her life caring for people who most of society wants to have very little to do with, people who are not well, people who are very poor, many of whom were homeless, struggling with drug problems, et cetera. And she worked the night shift for decades. She dealt with really difficult things and she lived an amazing life. She also, in the final years of her life, suffered from fairly severe dementia. At the very end, um, at the very end of her life, she, she died during COVID. And we, our family, decided to care for her at home. If, if she had been in hospice, we wouldn't have been able to go see her because of the COVID uh, restrictions at the time. And one of the most poignant memories of my life will be singing Amazing Grace to her for the last time with someone who had been her pastor for decades. As I stood in her room, I can see myself there now, and all the photographs of her life from when she was a little girl, and I sang Amazing Grace with my brother and my dad. I couldn't help but think, is this the outcome of a life well lived? That at the end, you can't even remember your family. You don't even remember yourself that well. What does it mean to be who we are? 
is as we are subject to the changes and chances of life. Our only comfort and hope is that in Jesus Christ, the eternal and unchanging God changes us by his mercy through union with Christ. That is what is declared to us in the epistle to the Romans. I want to say that again. Our only comfort and hope in this life and even in death is that the eternal God, the unchanging God, changes us by his mercy through union with Jesus Christ. So if you'll look with me at Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Before you are exhorted to be transformed, before Paul says, be renewed, be transformed, you must first have a view of God's mercies. That is what is revealed in the gospel. You must have a view of God's grace, which is what changes us. And we heard a snippet of that in the collect of the day that Father Gavin just read. The grace of God, we, we, we ask that God's grace would always proceed and follow after us. In our reading today from Jeremiah, Jeremiah cried out, Why is my pain unceasing and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Jeremiah wants to be transformed. He wants things to change. He is suffering under the changes and chances of this world. And he prays, will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like water that fails? But the answer came, thus says the Lord, I am with you to save you and deliver you. John Calvin, in commenting on this passage in Romans chapter 12, says that this is the difference between the Christian gospel and all other philosophies in the world, is this declaration of good news of God's mercy. The gospel is not just good advice. It's not just a list of things to do. Here's how you can change your life. The gospel is an announcement. It is a heralding of the action of God in Jesus Christ, which renovates us and renews all things. Earlier in Romans, there, there are a number of places where this is spelled out very clearly. This is especially the case in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, after a, a long explanation of how all are under sin, Paul says that now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed. In Christ, God has made a sacrifice for sin, and we receive God's righteousness by faith. And in so doing, Paul writes, this shows God's righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Later in Romans, this is, this is clarified even further in chapter 4, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just a random miracle. It was not a random magic trick to impress everyone. We needed someone to enter through death for us. We needed someone to enter into God's eternal life for us, who was truly a human being. And in Jesus Christ, truly God, truly human, we have passed with him through death to enter into eternal life. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Paul says. And in chapter 5, this is clarified further. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't find us lovely and worthy. God found us his enemies. He found us weak. 
And in his grace, he joined us with Christ to pass with Christ through death and enter into his life. Especially in Romans chapter 8, this is spelled out for us. The mercy of God for us means that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have been united with him. God's spirit has been given to us, and we have been given God's inseparable, inalienable love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul further continues this. In our past few weeks, you've heard in our service, readings from Romans 9 through 11, that we who are not part of the family of Abraham, the Gentiles, and to the Jews, God's mercy and grace has been given in Jesus Christ. And Romans 11 ended on a note of praise. The depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for from him and through him and to him are all things. God is worthy of praise because of his mercy that he gives us. But is mercy good? Do we want mercy? Nothing makes you want to vomit more than when someone comes to you and says, you know, I forgive you, but you don't think you've done anything wrong. Why does that just make us squirm inside of, well, I, didn't, I didn't do anything. I don't, I don't need to be forgiven. Um, why are you telling, the, telling me this? Um, that's an instinct that we all have before God. Um, we don't want to be pitied. We don't want to be weak. We don't, we don't want to admit that we've been wrong when we are wrong. And um, not just at a personal level, but even at a philosophical level. In the, the modern era, Friedrich Nietzsche inf influentially said that basically the Christian conception of mercy is what's wrong with the world. It just creates weakness. Um, it, it leads to those who are being wronged to just continue to be wronged. And um, there have been a lot of ways that Christians have responded to that. Um, the, the Oxford philosopher Philippa Foote famously argued against Nietzsche that mercy does not require a sense of inferiority being given. And even in the ancient world, this was a concern. Seneca was a contemporary of Paul, writing at the same time Paul was writing. And he wrote a book on clemency, on mercy. And he argued that what makes the difference between a good king and a tyrant is whether power is used beneficently or just to, to exploit others. Even in our own day, notions of mercy and forgiveness are very difficult to live out well in the Christian life. In 2015, there was a horrible shooting at Mother Emanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina. And it, uh, a, a domestic terrorist shot this historic, predominantly African-American congregation. And in the aftermath, the church, many of them forgave him, an unimaginable um, act of, of grace and forgiveness. And in the aftermath of that, there was a lot of conversation about whether such forgiveness was good. Does it distract from the underlying problem that created this event in the first place? Does, does mercy cheapen what was wronged? Does it distract us from working to make things right so that such problems don't happen in the first place? But mercy is good. Mercy doesn't mean that we can't also work to make the world better. Mercy doesn't necessarily mean that, we, that it, showing mercy to others means they're inferior. We all need mercy because we will all be, we all began our life in weakness and we will end our life in weakness. Every parent in the room knows how utterly weak, weak and helpless small children are from the smallest things of eating and, and cleaning themselves and clothing themselves to serious life decisions. 
We all, at the end of our life, very well could be like my grandmother, unable to care for ourselves. We are those who need mercy. And in Jesus Christ, God's mercy has come to us. Because of God's mercy, we can pray Psalm 26 boldly. When we pray things like, Lord, vindicate me because of my righteousness. That seems wrong to pray. I'm not righteous. I don't think I should be asking God to vindicate me on the basis of my righteousness. But if by faith you have been united with Jesus Christ, Martin Luther uses the the metaphor of a marriage to talk about what our union with Christ is. All that is ours becomes Christ's, and all that is Christ's becomes ours. Our record of debt was taken with him to the cross, and it was forgiven there. His record of life and righteousness becomes ours. So we can pray through our union with Christ, God, vindicate me. I am in Christ. So we must have a view of God's mercy, his grace, which gives life to the dead, which justifies the ungodly, as Paul says in Romans 4, before we can be transformed. Second, Paul in this passage says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or perhaps your translation says your your reasonable worship. Calvin, again, commenting on this passage says, we now find what sacrifice Paul recommends to the Christian church. For being reconciled to God through the one and only sacrifice of Christ, we are all, through his grace, made priests in order that we may dedicate ourselves and all we have to the glory of God. Father Gavin is the only ordained priest in this room right now. But in Jesus Christ, we are a kingdom of priests, it says in 1 Peter. And in this passage, you are called to a priestly calling, offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. And notice the the plural and the singular there. You are all to offer your bodies, each of you, as a living sacrifice, as, as one sacrifice together in the church. This is not an individual sport. This is not singles tennis. This is a team game that we are all called to participate in. And it's very significant what the worship is that God calls us to, offering our bodies, not just thinking the right thoughts, not just knowing the right stuff, using your bodies to the glory of God. That is a massive theme in Romans. The whole sermon just could be on the word bodies in this passage. In Romans chapter one, Paul talks about how We, in our sin, have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We have worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. And our bodies have been given up to dishonor, it says. Um, Continuing, in chapter 4, Paul talks about the stories of Abraham in Genesis. Abraham was not righteous before God because he was awesome, Paul says. Rather, Abraham and Sarah, they are described as their bodies being as good as dead. A promise was made that offspring would come from their line. And and Paul says in chapter 4, verse 19, he was about 100 years old, and his body was as good as dead. But God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, Romans 4, 17. God creates life out of death. At, At creation, at the beginning of all things, God made all things out of nothing. And here in Romans, God's grace, God's mercy, breaking into our lives, shattering our our idols, giving us new life, is the same creative word that spoke at creation. Continuing in chapter 6, 
Paul exhorts the church, those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. They have died with Christ. They have risen with Christ. And now they are to present their bodies to God. We're not to, where formerly our bodies were controlled by sin. Sin was like a parasite, something that took over our bodies, took over our agency. In Jesus Christ, our bodies have been bought back that we might now have grace as the operative driving force in our life, grace in the engine seat of our life rather than sin. Through our bodies, we have died to the law through the body of Christ in order that now we might no longer be enslaved to sin, chapter seven, verses four through six, but that our bodies might be presented to God. And probably the clearest place in Romans we hear this is in chapter eight. In Romans chapter eight, verse 10, Paul writes, if Christ is in you, if you're united with Christ, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit dwelling in you. Your body has become, now become the temple for God's dwelling place on earth, um, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. And here, it's those whose bodies were formerly just marked by entropy, Subject to the forces of sin and change and death, they now become the dwelling place for the spirit. So why does all this matter? Life in the body matters to God. It is not enough in the Christian life to just think the right thoughts, to know the right things. What you do with your body matters to God, whether that is in the area of rest and Sabbath whether that is in the area of being faithful with the sexual morality God calls us to in Jesus Christ, whether that is in how you physically treat other people. Your body is not just a shell that will be discarded. The Christian hope that we say every week in the Nicene Creed is that we believe in the resurrection of the dead, that what is sown will be raised again, that we will be like Christ in his resurrection body. How can we worship God with our bodies? I want to suggest to you today that some distinctively Anglican practices are extraordinarily helpful tools towards that end. Anglican worship is not the only way to be a Christian. We should be clear about that, but it is a very reliable way. It is a time-tested way. It's not automatic that if you just come to an Anglican church service or you, you go through the prayer book on your own, boom, you are now sanctified. You must believe the gospel. You must appropriate the faith yourself. You must make this your own in your life. But these are powerful tools and rhythms that can form us and shape us to believe the gospel, to worship God with our bodies. In this very service, we make the sign of the cross. We will kneel. In our Eucharistic prayers, we lift up our hearts to the Lord. At this church, we use the renewed ancient text for the, the Eucharistic prayer at the Lord's Supper. Also in the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, there's the Anglican Standard text, very similar, slightly different wording. And in that prayer, we pray, here we offer and present to you, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. The words of Romans 12. And the Eucharistic prayer Father Gavin will pray in just a moment. That is assumed, that's implicit, that we are going to be offering ourselves to God in this service. The Anglican pattern of prayer at home with your family can be powerful shaping tools for your life so that praying, so that 
offering our bodies to God can become second nature so that they can become habits that form us towards loving what is difficult for us to love. Our last point here is from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. In view of God's mercy, in view of this exhortation to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, Paul says this difficult word that cuts against the hearts of all of us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. In saying do not be conformed to this world, Paul uses the word age. And elsewhere in Paul's writings, especially in Galatians, Paul talks about how through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've been delivered from the present evil age, and now God's new creation has began. Is already here, though it's not yet here in its fullness. God has called us out of the pattern, the standard of what shapes life in this age, this life under sin, this life under death. And it takes courage to be weird. Um, I, I still find it amusing that when you go to Austin, I'm not from Austin. If you're from Austin, I don't, I don't hate Austin. But the tagline of Austin is so annoying to me. Keep Austin weird. Because it's not an alternative, uh, subversive, rebellious thing. It's on billboards. You know, it's, it's something mass marketed to raise money for the municipality. So it's not weird. It's just extremely normal. It's just Austin. Um, but really being weird, breaking peer pressure, is so incredibly difficult. Um, at the, student, the first Student Mesa group last week, we briefly talked about how much we all want to be liked, especially in high school. But what many of us find as we were in high school a very long time ago now is that all of life continues to be that way. We desperately want to be liked. Sometimes we even do things we don't really want to be doing just because we want to be liked. We find it so difficult to go against the grain of popular opinion, the opinion of a, a niche subculture we want to be a part of. If there's an inner ring of especially powerful people in our organization, if there's an inner ring of especially cool folks, we want them to like us, it's very difficult to have values. It's very difficult to have convictions. We will sell out our own selves just to be wanted, to be liked. It's difficult to, to be weird because we fear missing out. Well, if I'm not conformed to the pattern of this age, if I'm living a transformed life, that might be difficult. That might be hard. If your primary goal in life is to be wealthy, to, be, uh, to experience as much pleasure and comfort as you can, then following Jesus Christ is not the way for you. In the gospel reading we just read, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after him, we must take up the cross and follow him. And this is something that's very difficult for us to do today. A book was published this summer called The Great Dechurching, published by Jim Davis, Ryan Burge, and Michael Graham. And it is a, the, one of the biggest, most recent sociological studies of why people stop going to church. And what they found is that the things that tend to make a lot of headlines of why people leave church are statistically a relatively small portion of why people really do leave church. So the things that do make headlines are not unimportant. Scandals in the church, um, failures of leadership, abusive leadership, um, things that 
you've seen in the news about church stories, sexual abuse crises, power abuse crises, etc. Um, those account for about 25 to 30% of what they've tracked of people who've left church in the last uh, 20 years, I believe was the, the date range they were looking at in this very extensive study. What they found for the vast majority of other people that they researched who, have, who once were part of church is that they kind of would like to continue going to church. Life is just so busy and there's so many other things they would like to do that it's difficult for them to continue. Um, a, a massive thing cited was youth sports, was competitive traveling sports. I played competitive soccer in West Texas growing up. We played in a league in Dallas. It's very hard to be in church regularly in Amarillo when you are playing soccer in Dallas on the weekends. Um, some of you feel the tension of all the things that you're trying to cram into every week, work, extracurricular stuff, etc. It is a sacrifice to consistently be part of church. And it is the promised means God has given us to change us to be like Jesus, is in the, the word preached and this administration of the sacraments. Maybe not conforming to, this, to the pattern of this world means something radical in your life, selling everything, moving to another part of the world to care for the poor. Maybe it's something that doesn't look especially radical, but it means saying no to things that your peers are doing, even very good things, so that you can say yes to the things that God calls us to. All of us here, especially at this church that uses so many volunteers week in and week out for everything, we feel the strain of wanting to be able to do more and being limited by a time, by our energy, by our resources. How are you in your life conforming to the pattern of this world in the, the rat race of busyness? Are you doing what this says, renewing your mind? It's very difficult to renew your mind if you never rest, if there's never quiet in your life. It's very difficult to renew your mind if you are so conformed to the pattern of this age that your smartphone eats up every spare moment of solitude you might have otherwise. When you're off work for a moment and you have five minutes to spend, do you meditate? Do you, do you reflect on your day? Do you pull out your phone and look at trivial things you'll forget in a few minutes afterwards? Maybe not conforming to the pattern of this age and renewing your mind means cutting out how much time we spend on our screens all the time. Myself uh, being the foremost I'm, I'm speaking to right now. We become what we worship. The Bible is very clear about that. In Psalm 115, those who make, make idols become like them. In Romans, what we worship shapes us and forms us. But God in Christ calls us to this life of sacrifice, of cross-bearing, but I want to promise you today that knowing Christ is worth it, come what may in our lives in this age. Um, I wanna leave you with this word from Augustine. Why is this life of a living sacrifice worth it? Augustine, writing in the fifth century, writes about how he had sought out God. Where can I know God? How could, he, he writes about where God can be found. Is God in my mind? Is God in my memory? Is God out there in creation? And he writes in book 10 of Confessions, where then did I find you so that I could learn of you? For you were not in my memory before I learned of you. Where else then did I find you to learn of you? Unless it was in yourself above me, whether we approach you or depart from you, 
You are not confined in any place. You are truth, and you are everywhere present where all seek counsel of you. You reply to all at once through the counsel each seeks is different. The answer you give is clear, but not all hear it clearly. All you ask, whenever they wish to ask. I'll, I'll ask you whatever they wish to ask, but the answer they received is not always what they want to hear. The man who serves you best is the one who is less intent on hearing from you what he wills to hear than on shaping his will according to what he hears from you. I have learnt to love you late, beauty at once so ancient and so new. I've learnt to love you late. You were within me, and I was in the world outside myself. I searched for you outside myself, and disfigured as I was, I fell upon the lovely things of your creation. You were with me, but I was not with you. The beautiful things of this world kept me far from you, and yet, if they had not been in you, they would have had no being at all. You called me. You cried aloud to me. You broke my barrier of deafness. You shone upon me. Your radiance enveloped me. You put my blindness to flight. You shed your fragrance about me. I drew breath, and now I gasp for your sweet odor. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am inflamed with love of your peace. Whatever sacrifice is asked of us, knowing Christ is worth it. He is a treasure that cannot be taken from you through death and through life. Even if we are so changed that we no longer remember our own selves or our family and loved ones around us, through life and death, we belong to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Be present, O merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this day so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of this life may rest in your eternal changelessness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.